0: Hello there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host for this segment. Today we are speaking with Dr. Parbert Schottlein, a leadership strategist keynote speaker, host of the Women in Manufacturing podcast, and founder of Change Catalyst. She has worked with leaders in manufacturing and steel industries, among others, to facilitate successful and sustainable change at all levels. Some of her company clients include Abbott Laboratories, Ford Motor Company, Steel Dynamics, and Krupp. She is the author of the best-selling book, Change Intelligence, Use the Power of CQ to Lead Change That Sticks. Barbara is a faculty member teaching courses on change management and leadership at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. She received her doctorate in philosophy and organizational psychology at the University of Michigan. Barbara, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Catherine.
0: What is change intelligence, or CQ, and how is it different from what we know as intelligence quotient, IQ, or even emotional intelligence, EQ?
1: That's a great question to start off with. And how I define change intelligence, or CQ, and I use those terms interchangeably, is it's the awareness of our style of leading change and the ability to adapt our style to be optimally effective across people and situations. And why did I come up with that concept? Well, that's because I've been a change management and leadership development consultant and strategist for almost 30 years now. And I've helped companies uh, implement, design and implement major changes from, you know, again, Lean Six Sigma to um, uh, total quality management to self-managed teams. And several years ago, I sat back probably about 20 years into my career and there's research that shows that the failure rate of major organizational changes is about 70%. Hmm. So about 70, yes, about 70% of the major changes and that's across industries, manufacturing, healthcare, high tech. And the scariest part to me is that that's a statistic that John Cotter and his colleagues at Harvard came up with back in the when I was starting in business in the mid-80s and uh, about Seven or eight years ago, McKinsey and Consulting, the global consulting firm, came, did a similar study and came out with a similar statistic. So in the span of about 20 years, we hadn't really moved our need, you know, moved the needle to really design and implement change that sticks. So I sat back and I, I wondered why that was. And what I really distinguished was that we have a lot of tools to manage change. We have project management tools. We know we need communication plans, stakeholder alignment. We have a lot of tools in our change management toolkit and we also have a lot of tools to develop a wide variety of leadership capabilities so for example you mentioned emotional intelligence communication conflict management but I didn't see anything to help us really lead change as distinguished from the tools to manage change really help leaders lead change And so I put those two ideas together, change management, leadership development, and came up with the idea that the gap, the missing, is really our ability to lead change. And that's what change intelligence is all about. So that's how it differs, that you know your IQ, raw intellectual intelligence that you're born with, um, it's hard to, while you can get smarter and leverage your IQ, it's hard to really build it, much past adolescence. Um, and most people have heard of the concept of emotional intelligence, which is all about how smart you are with your emotions, which is wonderful because it is a malleable and develop, uh, developing skill, skill you can develop. And the same with change intelligence. Change, change intelligence is all about how smart we are in leading change, and it's definitely a skill that we can diagnose and develop.
0: I watched one of your presentations and you indicated that the CQ toolbox can be used to engage the brain, inspire the heart, and help the hands. How does this provide company benefits, to the, especially with the bottom line and employee empowerment?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so what we know now from the neurosci- neuroscience of leadership, so when I first started again in the mid-'80s, we didn't know this. This is information that neuroscience researchers have just come up with in the last decade. We know that in a very literal sense, to the brain, change equals pain. When these researchers put electrodes on people's brains and study studies what happens when people encounter change, the same neuroreceptors fire as when the brain encounters physical pain. So that's very fascinating information that what it suggests is that resistance to change, stress of change is normal and natural. That's just how our brains work, how our physiology works. And we know that what happens when we get stressed um, is that we get in that fight, flight, freeze mode. All our, the good stuff in our brains, the oxygen and the glucose rushes out of our, our brains down past our neck to help us fight, flight, freeze So to our lungs, to our muscles. And so literally what happens in change is that we get dumber. We literally get dumber um, when we need to get the most smart, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when, yeah, when the oxygen, the glucose rushes out of our brains, we literally narrow our solution space. We're not as good at making decisions. We're not as creative. We're not as innovative. We don't see as much options and possibilities. So what Change Intelligence is really all about is, first, as you say, equipping the brain, remembering to put our own oxygen masks on first our own oxygen mask on first remembering in the stress of, of stress of change to breathe and to be able to intelligently approach the situation because what's the most common topic in the change management literature is overcoming resistance to change, overcoming resistance to change. The whole focus is on doing something to or, or against or sometimes in spite of other people when the only thing really we can control is ourselves. So change intelligence helps us to remember that we have options. We have options when we lead change, and the more options we have, the more power we have. So it's an empowering message. So, what the, so what I, when I talk about um, in, you know, inspiring the head and, and, uh, and engaging the heart and equipping the hands, if change intelligence is the awareness of your style of leading change, then those are the three dominant styles of leading change that I've distinguished in my coaching with leaders at all levels, from the factory floor to the C suite, is that most leaders have a dominant style. Some of us are combinations, but people tend to either lead change from the head. That's focusing on the vision and the strategy and the grand ideas for the change, where the change needs to go, the business case.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Other change leaders, yeah, focus on the hands. That's the process. So they're very process-oriented. They're tactical. They're detail-oriented. And then other change leaders tend to focus mostly on the heart. That's really engaging people, communicating, uh, involving them in the change, building trust, trying to build consensus, So really dealing with the heart of change. So those are the three main styles of leading change. Um, again, change intelligence is the awareness of your style and the ability to adapt it. And so I tend to see people leading from the head, the heart, or the hand. And so those are the those are the three main styles of leading change.
0: We all have um, been well. We've been talking about all the changes happening happening in manufacturing and. I wanted to see how that has uh, impacted the work that you're doing with manufacturers in regards to the uh, leadership coaching.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about having, um, you know, I have an assessment that people can take, just like people might have been familiar with the Myers-Briggs or the DISC. And so, uh, you know, a 20-minute online assessment that people can take so they can diagnose their own style of leading change. And perhaps I'll just say a bit more about each of the three styles before I talk about manufacturing specific issues because your audience might be interested in diagnosing their own style leading change. And of course, just like we all have a head and a heart and most of us have two hands, we all can lead change from any of these different ways. Um, We just tend to have one or two, or some people do have three dominant styles. So in the absence of taking the assessment, um, let me just briefly talk about each of the styles and people can self-diagnose then they can get additional value from what we're talking about because it's again they can learn how to uh, be aware of their style and then learn how to adapt it which is where the real gold is in terms of leading change effectively so the first style, leading change from the head again this is all a strength based model so obviously leading from the head the vision and the strategy is incredibly important because we need to you know kind of position our manufacturing organizations for success success in the future Um, however any strength overdone is maybe not so much a strength anymore and so sometimes head-oriented leaders while they're on the train and the train is leaving the station to get to the shiny new future they can look around and look behind them and realize nobody's on board with them right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because sometimes they forget to bring the people along um, and so sometimes though they're very, they can be inspirational in their vision of the future they so get people on the board but sometimes the train can derail because they don't have they don't get people to plan in the process and effectively resource the initiative so people can partner with them towards the goal the second style the heart style um, those are the folks who again they love to engage people um, they like to build trust in teams they like to involve people um, obviously that's critical we need to get people on board However, sometimes their overdone strengths is that they could want 90, 95% people on board before we move forward, when in fact we need to operate with a stronger sense of urgency. And sometimes, again, they might drop out the tactical details to really help people understand the part that they play. Um, because again, they may be focusing more on the emotions than the plan in the last um, the last style is leading from the hands and these are folks who are great implementers very tactical very detail-oriented they're very realistic in their plans they analyze issues and risks Um, however sometimes they can be kind of heads down uh, focusing more change by checklist being efficient versus effective Um, and sometimes they can get frustrated with people dynamics and needing to get people on board and that sort of thing So those are the three main styles of leading change. And like I said, we're all combinations of all three to some degree, uh, but we do tend to have a, you know, a dominant or sometimes um, two dominant styles. So one interesting observation about um, manufacturing, perhaps unsurprisingly, is that um, now that I have a database, I have an assessment, so I have a database of several thousand um, change leaders around the world. And so uh, I can slice and dice the data in different ways, Um, you know, looking at, different regions of the world, different um, you know industries, departments, functions, genders, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, when I say leader, I mean leader at any level. So there's folks in the database that are in the C-suite, and there's folks that are on the front lines. There's folks that are engineers, human resources accountants, so it's pretty broad. Mm-hmm. Um, and in manufacturing, just based on what I said, Catherine, what would you think? What would you think would be the dominant Style in manufacturing, um, head harder, hand.
0: I would think but it would be the hands.
1: You're exactly right. You're exactly right. So, um, and and just you know, out of curiosity too, what do you think about what do you think your dominant style would be, for example?
0: My personal style?
1: Yeah, probably be yeah. more the brain. The brain? Okay, great. Well, my style is the combination of um, the brain and the hands. <laughs> so the heart and the hands, and that's uh, and if you picture it, you can picture it on a triangle. So there's heart on one angle of the triangle, head on the other, hands on the third. And so my style is diametrically opposed to the hands. Hmm. <laughs> it's on the other side, right? It's the combination. And so um, uh, so it's interesting because one thing, obviously, that um, manufacturers really excel at are things like really getting the need for process improvements like lean, like Six Sigma, like total quality management, like very intentional approaches to safety, right? Mm-hmm. Um standard operating procedures, very, really, really, really get that. Um, and that's that's a strength. That's a great thing, because one thing I spent the first probably decade of my career um, purely in manufacturing, steel mills, automotive plants, refineries, um, so heavy industry. And then I started doing more in healthcare, high tech, some industries that were, rap, you know, undergoing rapid change. And what I realized was that manufacturing, even though it's, Typically looked at as a as a traditional kind of old school kind of industry. In fact, was light years ahead of especially healthcare in safety management, in quality management, in lean six sigma, rapid action problem solving teams, a lot around teamwork and engagement cross functionally. Um, so I really saw that in terms of especially implementing some of these process improvement ideas. Manufacturing was way ahead. However, um, getting back to the um, uh, you know challenges around innovation um several of my you know manufacturing organizations they can sometimes struggle with recognizing the need to keep up with certain um whether it's you know digital innovations or the internet of things or whether it's you know some very new kind of bleeding edge technologies because again it's the um, that's kind of the, the strength of the head-oriented type of change leader, right? You know, the vision, the strategy, getting excited by the new and the different and optimistic about the possibility, whereas hands-oriented change leaders can focus more about the here and now and see more the um, bumps in the road and the potential problems and the difficulties of the new and different. Um, so sometimes can struggle to make the see the business case and move forward with a sense of urgency and also because you know perhaps a lower focus on the heart um, especially in the middle and upper ranks um, can sometimes struggle with really um, uh, you know that whole idea of empowerment and engagement and doing things cross-functionally because a lot of times have their heads down focus on the technical aspect of the work not the people aspect of the work. So those are some observations I made uh, I've made so far about uh, you know distinct issues and opportunities within manufacturing.
0: When you've been involved with training programs, do you advocate for the, the leaders that, that are being trained to be focused on all three, or do you have them work off of their strengths?
1: That's great. And definitely I say that, um, as, as I say, the, um, I say that change intelligence is the awareness of your style and then the ability to adapt it. So to your point, I really do look at all the different styles as strengths. People ask me what's the best style, right? and I say there is no best style the best leader is the one who's aware and can adapt and so I always say that there's three different things that you can do to adapt one you can um, you can partner with others um, in areas you're weak or you don't enjoy so again this is a preference based model not a skill based model so if you're high on the hands um, it means that you probably enjoy the tactics the implementation getting it done um, it doesn't mean you're necessarily good or bad at that. It's what you focus on, what you prioritize. However, um, again, all of us ha- can think of examples when we've done all three and can do all three. So, but if we're doing, if we're engaging in a behavior that's not our preference or a motivator or energizer, we get de-energized. It's like driving a car with a brake on, right? So, um, so in one way, that's why I enjoy a lot working with manufacturing organizations because being that head. Heart combination my style is the champion style I like to motivate and engage people which is kind of the opposite of a lot of the folks that I work with right mm-hmm. and a lot of the folks I work with love the planning love to nail that project plan the milestones the accountability so it's a good partnership it's very energizing for both of us um, for all of us so that's one thing the second thing we can do is build muscle in areas where we we don't enjoy because again even though we're talking about preferences and that skill, if we don't enjoy an activity, we may not have taken a lot of time to get exposed to it, get trained in it. Um, So for example, I, you know, have taken project management classes. I have not enjoyed them, but I know that that's what I need to do. At times I need to, I can't abdicate that responsibility just because it's not one of my quote unquote strengths. I need to have that skill, that tool in my tool bag, um, so I have build my muscle. I have gotten training, and we can all do that. Um, and then the third thing is put systems and structures in place to keep things on our radar screen that we might drop out. So, for example, if a lot of manufacturing organizations are lower on the head, what can they do? Well, they can do periodic, to be old school, SWOT analyses, right? right. Um, they can, yeah, they can bring in innovation consultants, or they can challenge themselves to. You know, again, an oldie but goodie. Look at Joel Barker's tactics of innovation, right? And um, you know, go to conferences. Talk, you know, network with other leaders and other organizations. Um, uh, benchmark. You know, again, see what's going on out there in the industry, where your what your customers are asking for, um, what your competitors are doing, so you can keep apprised and you can see what might make sense to bring back to your organization. Um, if an organization is lower on the heart, right, um, has Typically focused you know more about you know coming in doing your job and you know less maybe on engaging people in teams and in problem solving and decision making Um, what can you do well again there's a lot you can do around um, relationship building about team building um, about making sure that there's feedback mechanisms up and down the organization uh, so you really know what's going on so you can you know again effectively address people's emotional and fear-based concerns in a change um, so that's that's the third thing. So again, I think that um, we can, you know, I definitely focus people on leveraging their strengths, building their strengths, deploying their strengths anew in new and different ways. And I also talk about how can we more effectively partner with others, how can we build some muscle, and how can we put systems and structures in place.
0: There's um, a quote I I found from Alec Pendleton. He's an Akron manufacturer, and uh, he blogs for the MPI Group and. He wrote that entrenched people and ideas and habits favor the status quo, and even when the status quo is no longer working, the response of the organization is typically typically to just give the problem more time. And uh, what would you, be your response to that in terms of uh, coming up with the critical components for effective transformation?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great quote. And definitely, you know, my early career was, for example, my first real project was working in a steel mill that was in bankruptcy. And it was the mid '80s, and we were getting our lunch eaten by foreign competition. And it wasn't uncommon back in the day for people to come to work and see a factory clothes sign on the front gate, right? Mm-hmm. And people were totally shocked and blindsided. And so I think that again, it's that's why I say leaders at all levels. I think it's incumbent upon all of us, no matter if we have formal leader in our in our title or not, to develop our ability not just to cope with change, right? For ourselves but that's important develop you know our resilience and change friendliness um, but also really to understand how we can lead change Um, so uh, so obviously there's so much research that the number one critical success factor in leading change is um, upper you know the senior leadership um, commitment and buy-in in support of the change um, however, one thing we also know is that, you know, is, is the, is for my research, not only in, my man, in manufacturing, but across industries, that the dominant style leading change at the top of the organization, um, in manufacturing there's somewhat more hands, but it still tends to be a lot of head, a lot of head-oriented leadership, which again, vision and strategy looking towards the future. However, as we know, the higher up you get in an organization, the more difficult it is to get any feedback at all let alone real-time and actionable feedback (laughs) Mm -hmm. so you know one CEO said to me "He's like Barbara it's like we're all monkeys in a tree and I'm the top monkey and I look down and what do I see I see the smiling faces of all the monkeys below me (laughs) and they look up and what do they see and he patted his rear end (laughs) (laughs) so so I think that's why you know undercover boss is so popular because what happens in every episode um, a uh, CEO masquerades as a frontline employee and sees for a week or two how hard it is for good people to implement the changes that they're advocating. So um, so that's why I say that um, one thing that we also really need to think about is really equipping and empowering leaders at all levels. On the front lines. really that's where change is m- uh, made or broken, right? We know that from Lean Six Segments, all about the frontline. So, do we really have leaders on the front line that are equipped to engage people, to lead from the heart? Because that's where a lot of the, re- you know, emotional level resistance come from. Um, but then sometimes, too, people might get it and they might want it, but they just can't do it. That's head, heart, hands in action. The executives might have made the good business case, the transformational, um, you know, kind of message that makes a lot of sense intellectually. Um People might actually want it. They might say, yeah, this is going to help us be competitive for the future, and we, you know, we're engaged. We want it. However, sometimes they just can't do it. They might have gotten a one-off training session. They might have, um, uh, uh, you know, um, have some, you know, again, new tools that they've been given. But really, they haven't been given having had their uh, – it, it, it took, t- tends to take longer than we think. And so, the ability in an organization to have those feedback mechanisms from the front line to the middle ranks to the top, where you know people can really understand, oh, here's some hiccups we're having, here's some issues and opportunities. And so, it's not just the top-down communication, right, from the senior leaders, which of course their buy-in is critically important, but it's also the ability to bubble up feedback. Um, from the front lines, from the middle ranks, in terms of what's working and what's standing in people's way, and how can we help remove some of the barriers.
0: Now, I'm going to switch topics, I want to talk about something. I'm, I'm really excited uh, that when I found out that you are host of the Women in Manufacturing podcast. And uh, What is the goal of the podcast, and what have been some of the most compelling stories to come from the uh, interviews? Uh, this is something that is relatively new, right?
1: Absolutely. So just last summer, I was a guest myself on the founding podcast, kind of the the grandmother of this podcast, let's say, the uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio podcast, which may also be of interest to your listeners. And that was started by a couple of steel mill execs that were visionary and saw that there was, uh, you know, a, 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 that manufacturing in general, like you're seeing, I'm sure, is underserved in terms of really sharing thought leadership via, you know, radio and this mechanism. So they created it as a service to their customers and, you know, folks in the industry, the manufacturing talk radio podcast several years ago. And then it it became more and more apparent to them um, from their leadership in, um, go, you know, uh, you know, sponsoring women in manufacturing conferences, for example, really their attempt in their organization to. Um, attract, retain, and promote um, women in manufacturing and women leaders, that specifically women in manufacturing is a very underserved market. And that obviously, um, you know, we know from the statistics that um, the percentage of women in manufacturing is low, um, the percentage of women, uh, you know, on the front lines to the the senior ranks in manufacturing is low, and that there's really a need to, uh, first of all, help uh, even young girls in middle school and high school even understand that uh, you know that this is a possibility in terms of a career path for them and expose them to what that might look like and how diverse careers in manufacturing really are. and then to uh, you know help, uh, you know for manufacturing organizations themselves to do more in terms of uh, you know, kind of reaching out and um, to 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 women. and then a lot that, you know women, uh, at all levels from, again, the front to engineering ranks to seniors can do to pay it forward and to help, um, uh, you know, train, develop uh, women in manufacturing. Because, you know, of course, there's some perhaps unique issues and opportunities when a woman gets into a manufacturing organization. And, of course, she's most likely, you know, uh, underrepresented compared to her co- male colleagues and Um, You know, and there still might be certain assumptions or biases to contend with that might be different than what uh, the men have to deal with in terms of um, setting themselves up for success in a manufacturing organization. So that is really what the so the 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 founders of the Women in Manufacturing podcast then just, um, you know, recognize the need. And so ask myself and five other women who they had interviewed who, you know, again, do coaching, consulting, training in manufacturing to be guest hosts. So we just kicked this off in November. The first, um, if your readers, if your listeners are interested in um, checking it out, it's uh, womenandmfg.com online, and also that's the same Twitter handle. And if you go online, you can see the first interview was with a woman who was an original Rosie the Riveter. So Great. literally during World War II, yeah, she, um, I think at 16 years old, uh, you know, got a job at a manufacturing facility and has a very inspirational tale to tell about her, um, her role and, and what she learned. And so and then, of course, we've um, since then interviewed women who are um, working in manufacturing at different levels. Um, interviewed academics that you know kind of support the training and development of women in manufacturing unions union leaders um, uh, that uh, that that play a role so um, so thank you for asking because it's definitely um, filling an underserved niche and a very important opportunity for women and for men I believe and for manufacturing organizations in the industry
0: absolutely we're gonna leave it there thank you Barbara for coming on the show
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All
0: right.